Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol Jesus 911, two man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. Talking about all things Catholic. Oh, let me let me uh, shut down my uh, speaker here or my microphone. No, my speaker. There it is. Paul, hey, brother. How are you? How are you doing today? Good, Jess. How are you? Good, good. Hey, today we want to talk about something that's very important. Uh, the virtue of courage. There's this, a lecture that was given by one of the good bishops of the country, uh, Bishop... Uh, Bishop uh, Conley, James Conley from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. In fact, I was just there in his diocese a few weeks ago speaking at some parishes. Uh, yeah, he's uh, one of those uh, good holy bishops, thanks be to God. He wrote, he gave a lecture on courage and uh, I think it's worth sharing because I, I gleaned a lot from it myself. And this is something I think people would benefit listening to the theology of courage. So, he says, he gave this address, by the way, in front of the Catholic Medical Association, the 92nd Annual Educational Conference. So Bishop Conley says the following, okay, on the theology of courage. He says, my comments are not what I originally intended. A title like The Heart Has Its Reasons, Thoughts on the Theology of Courage, can go in all sorts of directions. But two names, two men, kept intruding on my work. And they finally hijacked it. The reason why is simple. Each of their lives in very different ways confirms the words of Moses to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19. Where Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your descendants may live. Most of us have heard that Bible passage before. Many of us dozens or even hundreds of times, but it's just lines of ink on a page until the words take flesh and blood. And what those words mean speaks directly to the heart of our conversations at the Catholic Medical Association conference. I said there were, there were two men, two intruders, two hijackers responsible for this talk. So I'll begin with Michael Burley. He's the first. Burley is the British author and one of Europe's greatest living historians. But I think his book is often overlooked because it's so painful to read. It's called Death and Deliverance. Written nearly 30 years ago is the history of the German euthanasia campaign from 1900 to 1945. The Third Reich murdered roughly 300,000 men and women and children in its Acteon T4 program from 1939 through the end of the war. And it was done in the name of purifying the genetic pool. In other words, to improve social hygiene and the nation's economic health. The targets were the mentally and physically infirm, and the program became a very useful dry run for the Holocaust. The mercy killings were first carried out by injection. Wow, Paul sounds uh, eerily similar to what... Uh, happened in America three years, and what they want to still do again. Yeah, eer eerily similar. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, yeah, the mercy killings were first carried out by injection, but that was too slow. 
Later, they were handled by mobile vans and sealed infirmary rooms for handling large groups at a time. Hmm. All of this sounds quite hmm. wicked, and of course it was. But it wasn't illogical. On the contrary, it was perfectly rational. If by rational we mean consistent, methodical reasoning from the premise of racial cleansing and its urgency, it would be easy to blame all this on a gang of evil Nazis. But that would also be dishonest. The Third Reich simply operationalized what much of the German medical establishment had already been urging. Involuntary mm. euthanasia for the diseased and disabled for nearly 40 years. Wow, sounds much like modern-day United States of America. Hmm. Medical personnel took an active and willing part in Actian T4, and the German scientific community joined the bandwagon. Zyklon B gas wasn't cooked up in Hitler's basement, but by cooperative German chemists in mainstream national labs. The Reich simply followed the science to Auschwitz and Birkenau all of which is appalling. But the main lesson we need to learn from it today, here and now, is this. The German institutions entrusted with protecting and providing for these so-called patients were nearly all run by Catholic and Lutheran medical and religious personnel. Wow, much like today, Paul, the people mm -hmm. who are to protect us is, uh, is, is uh, the Vatican and the bishops. Very interesting. Mm. And nearly all of them folded under pressure. They were weak. They were cowards. They went along with the regime. Sounds like our church today have, going along with the COVID regime. It says, mm. and the blood of the innocent is also on their hands. That's the lesson Michael Burley captures with unforgiving clarity. Paul, you got some comments? Yeah. Uh, like you said, yes, uh, eerily uh, similar to what's going on. It's funny because, uh, you, you know, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, she got a lot of her ideas from the Nazis. So this, you know, you, you can see that now you see how that makes sense. Uh, Germany, you know, had this idea that, you know, hey, we have to really look at things and get rid of uh, people who are just taking up space, but, you know, the idiots, uh, you know, people who may be, uh, you know, uh, physically handicapped, any type of mental impairment, you know, let's just get rid of them. And that's exactly uh, how Planned Parenthood was hatched. <laughs> but um, as far as uh, the comments on, um, you know, his observations, Jess, are, uh, you know, are, are right on point. Uh, you know, courage is a is a virtue, and I, you know, as I as I read this article, Jess, I thought about you. Uh, remember those days when you used to enter the ring? <laughs> we used to call it the square jungle. Oh yeah, of course. I, yep. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 You know, so a lot of people, if you've never fought, or uh, you know, it, you know, it took it took a lot of courage to get up there, and uh, in front of the whole world, so to speak, you know, all your bosses and everybody else. And, and, you know, and the famous rivalry was between you and, and the LAPD, right? The sheriff's department and LAPD, and they had their champion and we had ours. And, right. Yeah. It, you know, it was so, yeah. Yeah. And so, but that courage, um, you know, it's something that, you know, came second nature to you. 
it was a part of your DNA. It was who you were. Uh, you know, I don't think you knew any other way to act in, in, except in a courageous way. And I just think that, uh, you know, when a person is, is, is in a state of grace, now let's take it to the spiritual, yeah. and he is, um, uh, you know, connected uh, to our Lord, uh, uh, to the mystical body of Christ, to, uh, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, it's part of the DNA. Courage is part of the DNA. But when people lose the faith, Jess, when people, uh, you know, uh, they might have all the exterior signs of the faith, but they don't have the faith. Uh, you used to call it, uh, oh, they need, uh, they need to be regenerated, right? They need to be... Uh, you know, in, 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 in a, in a relationship with God, that's living. Uh, they don't, they don't display just people like that. Don't display courage. They always buckle. They always give in. Uh, it's only the martyrs, like the, the great St. Stephen, who, you know, again, in Acts chapter seven, he takes the Sanhedrin down memory lane and accuses them uh, of always always being on the wrong side of history you know and, and it eventually led to his death so uh i yeah so it's important you know yeah, we want people to be courageous absolutely but it doesn't happen outside of being connected to the the, the most courageous that's right person amen amen lord and savior Jesus christ and our lady you got it paul you nailed it brother that's that that's now, Father, I mean, Bishop Conley talks about a second story, and I remember this one when it happened. In 2008, a young Virginian man with Down syndrome fell into a septic tank in his family's property when the cover collapsed. His father jumped into the sewage and, and stink to keep his son's head above water long enough to be rescued. So the father jumped into the septic tank, went underneath his Down syndrome son, pushed him up. His dad is mm. in the muck and mire, but he's pushing him up so his son can breathe. And, uh, mm. and the father, Thomas Vanderwood, died as a result, saving his son. He did it purely out of love for a human being, otherwise seen as flawed, defective, and unworthy of life by a great many people. And the proof of their callousness is a simple statistic. 96% of Down syndrome children today are killed in their mother's womb. My point in, in these things is simple. The events that Michael Burlake recounts and the example of Thomas Vanderwood, this father who jumped in a, a toilet, Andy Gump, mm. picked up his son and held him up. And the father drowned in muck and mire, holding up his son. Uh, these are two very different understandings of human dignity and their purpose. Uh, they're two incompatible responses to De Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Responses that mm. each in its own way prove the truth of that biblical verse. <clears throat> You're listening to Jesus 9-1. We'll continue talking about courage. Uh, Two-man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. And also, on the rundown, we're going to be talking about who Jesus Christ is. 25 things that everybody should know about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Stick around. We'll be right back. Now, back to Jesus 911.
If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, two-man car. Uh, we're talking about courage here. In uh, Bishop Conley writes, he says, the first letter of John chapter 4, verse 18, reminds us that perfect love cast out fear. And that implies, that implies that the reverse is also true. Fear drives out love. Love is mm. the glue that sustains all human relationships. It's the saving grace of our humanity, the connecting tissue between people and generations. It gives us a framework of meaning by, by embedding us in a narrative of hope larger than ourselves and the limits of this world. And fear does the opposite. Fear is the infection at the heart of modern life. It makes us miserly and selfish. It robs us of our nobility by lowering the horizons of our, of our desire. It dulls our appetite for something more and higher than the latest streaming service. And worst of all, makes us cowards. I like the way in this article, uh, Bishop Conley uh, quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis described the chest, the human heart, as the indispensable liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man. Blaise Pascal said that the heart has its reasons which reason knows not. Both saw clearly that it's the heart, not just our rationality, that makes us distinctly human. It's the heart that gives us love and courage, neither of which can ever be reduced to mere instinct and biochemistry. It's the heart that elevates us into something more than just very smart animals with appetites. In fact, one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis found the trend of modern science so troubling was in was this particular appetite for creating what he called men without chests men without chests men without higher moral law men without the constraints of love and paul i'm just going to go right to i'm going to go right to uh probably the the epitome of courage is uh, Mm -hmm. our lord jesus christ when he died for our sins on the cross, uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, in fact, I'll flip open my Bible and and I'll read what it says. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, refused to do what the first Adam did. The first Adam did not want to suffer for his bride, Eve. The first Adam did not want to, uh, you know, even laid down the possibility of having to lay down his life. He didn't want to do that. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did exactly what the first Adam refused to do. The first Adam on the cross laid down, suffered and laid down his, his, his life for his bride. Comments? Uh, yeah, yeah. Heroic virtue. Uh, yeah. And we, what are we called to do, Jess? We're called to emulate our Lord yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. No greater love is this that a man lay down his life. And that, you know, so again, when we look at the challenges that are, uh, that we're facing today in the world and the church, you know, we, we have to, you know, we have to see it in the context of, uh, it's an opportunity. You see, suffering perfects love. We talk about that, Jess, but uh, uh, in fact, we know that a suffering church is a holy church. And so I have to constantly remind myself because it's so easy to get discouraged. It's so easy to just be disheartened. But at the same time, I have to remember we were made for a time such as this. God 
did not just, uh, you know, uh, inadvertently, you know, say, oh, you guys are going to be born when you're born. He made us for this time. And, and he expects us to be faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we are more than conquerors, as sacred scripture tells us. Amen. And uh, here's the verse that I was looking for. Uh, it talks about kind of juxtaposing Jesus Christ, the second Adam, with the first Adam. It says in mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, In the days of his flesh, that means in his the incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, to the Father, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this mm. verse in the book of Hebrews, it's recalling that the, it's the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. And it's, it's yes. recalling his sufferings and prayers even on the cross. And, uh, and, and where it says that he offered up that Greek word, uh, it's, it's linked back with the Old Testament with the priestly sacrifices. That's the same word that's used in Leviticus that he offered up. And yes. uh, it, it says that he knew that the, the father is able to save him. Jesus acknowledged that the father, uh, had he willed it, he could have delivered him from torment and death at any moment. But he knew that his prayers were being heard by the father. And he knew that uh, it, it, it was it was not by sparing him from the experience of death, but by rescuing him from death in the resurrection. And the godly fear that the book of Hebrews talks about, this is a reverential fear of the father in his humanity that proves stronger in Jesus than his human fear of death. And his reverence was, was manifest as heroic virtue, heroic obedience to the will of the father. This is something that the first Adam did not comprehend, did not embrace, did not have reverential fear of the father. Uh, and so it's this, the Bible says that he learned obedience. Now it, it wasn't by trial and error, but it was from the experience in his humanity of passing through the human trials and ordeals that tested, uh, that tests all our commitment to God and Christ. Yes. Being we have to remember that Christ being eternally divine he possessed the fullness of knowledge from the very first instant of his conception as a man. He, he was ignorant of nothing. So he could not learn anything new by simple, you know, recognition like you and I do. But, but there's a knowledge acquired also by experience. We talk mm. about in Christology that Christ learned through experiential knowledge. And in this sense, Jesus Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. He, having accepted our weakness, he learned how difficult it is to obey for he obeyed the most difficult of circumstances, even unto death on a cross. And he did what the first Adam failed to do for the human family. Christ, our elder brother, the kinsman redeemer, he embraced what the first Adam failed to do for his bride in the Garden of Eden. Mm, yes, he died for his bride. He defended her to death. Hey, you know, uh, which is the church. Um, Jess. As I think about this, you know, I, I started remembering thoughts that I used to have. And I used to think, well, yeah, but he's God. You know, he's he's 
he's he's man he's the god man he has the dual nature you know the hypostatic union but it but he's god but the reality is is no when christ came and offered himself up you know it was you know uh you know it was he didn't you know he doesn't okay he doesn't require anything from us that he wasn't willing to do for himself you know uh we're invited to join into his suffering. He has given us the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that that worked powerfully through him is working through us. And uh, to me, uh, again, it's so easy and to fall into that temptation is that you know, it really wasn't that hard for him because he was God. But no, it says that he gave those things up, you know, that equality with God in the incarnation why so that he could be our kinsman redeemer that's right you know these are times right now that that are that breed saints and heroes the times that we're living in right now and there's 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 also many times when people choose to be cowards and evildoers so right now we're living in such a time uh Uh there there's no more middle ground to hide in as catholics we should not be discouraged I know that the task of evangelization is enormous. I get that. But this is our Esther moment. And we were destined for such a time as this. And we have to rise to the occasion. And that same Holy Spirit that filled the hearts of King David as he battled Goliath. And that filled the, yeah. the hearts of, 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 uh, of St. Paul as he, as he uh, you know, in the, in, a, in the prison epistles. That same Holy Spirit lives in us. And and the time for wavering, the time for playing church, it's over, man. I'm telling you, whatever is in your life that's preventing you from being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's time to get rid of that impediment now. And there's only one choice mm. for Catholics. And the only choice for Catholics is what Joshua says in chapter 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yes. Whatever, whatever yes. that culture, whatever the culture of death throws our way, you know what? Bring it on. We, we, we're going to follow Jesus and we will never bow down our knees to, to the balls of this world. Uh, as Catholics, we will only bend our knee to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let's not forget that in the end, we have the certainty that triumph, that the, that the truth will triumph over lies and light over darkness and good will triumph over evil. We have that certainty. We just have to hold on to it, Paul. Yes, yes. We have confidence and we have a confident assurance that, you know, that if we trust the Lord, if we follow his mandate, uh, and, you know, just this stuff is no surprise. He already told us it wasn't going to be easy. He said, do not marvel if the world hates you. Uh, expect it. Why? Because the world hated me before it hated you. And, you know, and a servant is not greater than his master. Uh, You know, uh, this is, uh, you know, what we can expect. Uh, The Bible tells us clearly that there are three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know the devil is out there actively, actively seeking to ensnare us and to trap us, Uh, not only us individually, but human you know humanity he's you know he's like a desperate animal you know you know fighting uh to try to take as many with him because he knows his seal as he can 
but the, the worldview that's out there that constantly goes against God. And I had some reflections on the world, Jess. Uh, as you know, the Catholic Church, uh, when it followed the mandate of Christ to go out into the world, to essentially bring Christendom to the world, to unite uh, the, the states, uh, uh, you know, human government with the church, uh, separate, but at the same time working together to, so that man could achieve his end, which is God. That, uh, uh, that was the viewpoint. But ever since, and think about this, ever since the French Revolution, ever since they came up with this idea that, oh, separation of church and state, well, once you unhinge and unhook the state from, from, from the moral, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, force of the church, then what you have in the state is you have a bunch of men without faith who are making, uh, who are legislating in an ungodly right. way. Hold that thought. Yeah. At Jesus 911. We'll be right back. Stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Let's talk about 25 Bible verses about the Son of God. Here's one. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, so the gospel proclaims Christ is the Son of God, not one of the sons of God, the Son of God. And at the very mm. beginning of this gospel, St. Mark the Evangelist provides his readers assurance that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And St. Luke, in St. Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary that her son to be born is the Son of God as well. Luke one thirty five it says, And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God only has one son by nature. The rest of us are sons of God by adoption, Romans chapter 8. That's through baptism. All, the, God only has one son by homoousius. That's the Greek word for of the same substance or of the same nature. And that's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Mark chapter 1, mm -hmm. verse 1, and Luke chapter 1, verse 35 uh, clearly states that. Somebody told me the other day, well, isn't Muhammad a son of God and Buddha? I said, nope, not at all. There's only one mm. son of God by nature. The other ones that are not baptized are creatures of God. They are the yeah. creation of God. They're not sons of God. Let's talk a little bit about the, what does the Bible say about the temptation? The son of God was tempted by the devil. There's a few verses there. Gives an example. Matthew 4, 3 says, the tempter, that's one of the titles of the devil, the tempter approached and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. In Luke 4, 30, 4, 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. In Matthew 4, 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you with your hands, they will support you lest you dash your foot against a stone. And uh, same with Luke 4, 9. Then he led him to Jerusalem, made him stand on the parapet of the temple. And he said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. The Catholic Church tells us that the devil was not sure, was not sure if Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And that's why you hear every time the devil encounters our Lord in his humanity, he keeps asking him if, if, if you are the Son of God. Paul, you have any comments? Yeah. Um, well, I really don't have any too many okay. comments on that one, Jess, other yeah. than the fact that every time the devil tempted him, Jesus responded with sacred scripture. He, so, again, that's, a, that's an important uh, point. Yeah. Uh, so, again, uh, the devil, you know, you know, he'll he'll bring a temptation. But if you know the word of God, uh, if you uh, the word of God uh, can be used as a weapon against the devil because the truth is what sets you free and obviously jesus is the embodiment of truth so his usage of sacred scripture was you know par you know second to none you know and not only that it, that that also shows us that we should be using scripture in yes. times of temptation and by the way yes. basically all catholic prayer either explicitly or implicitly comes from the god's word all catholic prayer implicitly or explicitly and so jesus christ showed us how to ward off temptation you start recalling you start repeating you start evoking you start praying the word of god and there's a bible verse that base that that essentially tells us that the devil wasn't sure if jesus was a son of god wasn't sure it's in first corinthians chapter 2 verse 8 it says this None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. So who are the rulers of this age? Well, on a human level, it could have been the Jewish and Roman authorities who collaborated to execute Jesus Christ. But mm -hmm. St. Paul uses the rulers of this age in Ephesians chapter 6 as demons. Demons are the rulers of this age. And so it, it says it right in the Bible that the rulers of this age, if they had known who Jesus Christ is, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because again, what they did by crucifying the Lord of glory, the rulers of this age, they set off redemption and they set off the salvation of the human race. And they triggered the final covenant, the final perfect and complete covenant uh, that, uh, that uh, mediates uh, and bridges the gap or atones between a holy God and a sinful human race. Those demons, they were part of that triggering mechanism to, to, to bring that covenant, that final covenant, and ratify it at the very end on Calvary. No, Paul, there's a couple of verses on authority there. It yeah. G so yeah, go ahead. The, the Son of God is given authority by the Father. Uh, he cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? It's Matthew chapter 8, 29. Uh, so the demons recognize at this point uh, Jesus uh, as the Son of God. And, um, you know, uh, again, at some point, so, you know, just based on what you just said, I'm going to make an assumption. 
uh, at some point, I mean, how does how do we reconcile this to what you just said? Oh, this this verse here. They cried out, what have you to do with us, the Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? God would veil the demons' uh, vision and understanding when they would come, when they would encounter the Son of God. God would just blind them. In this instance, he removed that veil and he allowed them to see who he was. So God, with his permission, he would either blind them in their encounter where they could not recognize who he was or he would allow them to see him and recognize who he was in his full divinity. And so in this instance, he, uh, he obviously removed the veil and, uh, and they were able to proclaim him because he wanted, he wanted them to proclaim him as a son of God in, in public. Uh, hmm. and, and, you'll, and you'll see, uh, uh, for example, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ at the very end, the, the, the incredible movie by Mel Gibson, where the devil screams when Jesus Christ dies on the cross and, and the camera moves okay. from, from our Lord to the devil. So why is the devil screaming and, and you know, tearing off his clothes when he sees the Son of God dying on the cross? Is it once again? Because he wasn't sure if Jesus was the Son of God. But when he saw the Son of God dying on the cross and his blood dripping from Calvary, now he knew, oh no, that blood, the devil knows the Bible better than anybody else. He knows Hebrews 9.22. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So he saw, I've been fooled. I collaborated with the Romans and the Jews to kill this man. And he turns out to be the son of God. And the shedding of his blood now is triggering redemption around the cosmos. What is redemption? Redemption. Prisoners being set free from jail cells. That's redemption. In other words, every one of us were prisoners of war in one man's cells because of original sin and actual sin. And Christ's shedding of his blood, drip, drip, drip. All the jail cells in the cosmos were blown open just like in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas began praising God in a prison and all the jail doors were miraculously blown open by God. That's what the devil saw on Calvary. That's why he start, He begins tearing his clothes and he begins writhing in mental pain because he's been fooled. Mm. God did ju- God did judo to him on Calvary, as Dr. Peter Crave says. Mm. So, yeah... Let's let's go. Let's go on to the proclamation, Paul. Proclaiming verse. Okay, okay. So uh, Jesus Christ proclaims He is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear His voice, and the Son of God uh, hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. John chapter five, verse twenty-five. Uh, that's a that's a powerful verse. We hear. Yeah. When you read when you read yeah. the, the next two verses on that, it's, it actually says Jesus is actually saying when he comes back, he's going to raise people from the dead. That's a pretty powerful claim. If you're just a carpenter, saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to speak with the voice of my command and I'm going to raise people from the dead. The only person that can make such a claim is the God man, the God man, or a God man, and that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. When he speaks, yeah. it happens. Yeah. And I also, you know, the spiritual component to this verse 
clearly, God says that his word goes out and it shall accomplish all that he sends it out to accomplish yes. and will not return to him void. So uh, the spiritually, uh, those who are spiritually dead will be awakened. Why? By faith. But when they hear, when they hear the voice of God, hear his word proclaim, and we know that the word is a person, uh, they will live, right? Literally, uh, and we're given life. Okay. Uh, can you say that the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into this into the world blasphemes because I said, I am the Son of God? And that's in John uh, chapter 10, verse 36. And lastly, when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to the end in death, but it is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John chapter 11, verse 4. Obviously, uh, just once again, uh, on full display that, uh, uh, you know, proclaiming that he is, in fact, uh, the Holy One of God. And remember, this is the big difference between uh, Judaism and Islam. This is this is where where our discussion breaks down. Both of them are monotheistic religions that do not believe that God has a son. And so Jesus Christ, his claim to be the son of God, that's I, it's either the truth or it's a lie. The reason it's the truth is because everything he says happens. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Now. Back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Our Lord Jesus Christ, disciples. The word disciple means a student. That's what it means in Greek, methetes. Our, our Lord says in Matthew 14, 33, those who were, who were in the boat, did him homage saying truly you are the son of god so the apostles proclaim christ as the son of god john 134 now i have seen and testified that he is the son of god john 149 nathaniel answered him rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of israel we're quoting these passages i'll tell you why because jehovah's witnesses oftentimes will say jesus never claimed to be the son of god and so we're giving you a plethora of verses uh, that demonstrate that that's exactly what he claimed. Uh, and, and there's a, there's a passage in the book of Proverbs. I think it's chapter, let me grab my Bible. I think it's chapter 30. Where, uh, and I, I share this oftentimes when I talk to with my fellow Jewish brethren. And they say, uh, well, just, you, you know, you guys mean well, you Christians, but, but uh, Yahweh has no son. Uh, here's what you would share with a, a a Jewish brother. And I'm going to be in Israel for nine days, so I'm probably going to deploy this verse uh, several times. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 4, it says, Now, the Jews call God, let's just say God, they call God for sake of argument, Elohim or Yahweh. Uh, okay, so here it is. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Well, how would a Jew answer that? They'd say, Yahweh. 
Who has gathered the wind in his fist? What would a Jew say? Yahweh. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? What would a Jew say? Yahweh. Who has established all the, all the ends of the earth? A Jew would say Yahweh. What is his name? A Jew would say Yahweh. And what is his son's name? Ah, so in the Jewish Bible, it's asking rhetorical questions about Yahweh, about his power and majesty. And then it's, it asks in the same sentence, what is his name? A Jew would say Elohim or Yahweh or El Shaddai. Uh, or Adonai. Yeah. And then it says, and what is his son's name? So right in the Hebrew Bible, it's telling us that Yahweh or Elohim or El Shaddai or, 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 or Adonai, he has a son. This is in the Old Testament. The Jewish Bible tells us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has a son. It's in the Old Testament canon. And so that makes these verses now in the New Testament like, okay, Christ is just basically saying what the Old Testament canon already indicates, that Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, uh, you know, uh, Adonai has and a I, son. And, I, and Jess, and I'll tell you who would answer that. He would say Israel, because, you know, often Israel is referred to as my firstborn son. Right. And so they would interpret that and say, Israel, that's who his son is, us, you know. Right. That's, and, uh, that's, how, and, that's, that's how they would answer it. And of course, and that, that would come into what the Catholic Church calls the polyvalent understanding of Scripture, which is simple, which means that Scripture has a historical interpretation yes. and Scripture has a spiritual interpretation. So I would say to a Jew, absolutely, on a historical level, that is one interpretation. But on a deeper level, on an eschatological level, on a soteriological level, it is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the spiritual no interpretation. And so, yeah, again, no that's the problem with just being part of the old covenant people of God is that you don't have the benefit of the new covenant. The new covenant, it, it, it reveals the old. The old covenant, in many instances, will not make sense without the revelation of the new covenant. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely correct. And uh, again... Uh, uh, I, what I love about our church is many times the answer is both are true. Right. Like yes. you said, uh, yes. you know, the Catholic church doesn't usually go to an either or it goes, it's a both and type situation. And, uh, and like you said, that's the, the deeper meaning behind it that God communicates uh, uh, to us. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you're talking about the word of God, you know, you know, we need to contemplate it on a, on a deep spiritual level and not just the natural. Yeah, so we're sharing here 25 times where the Bible, 25 verses where God is called the Son of God. And again, we say this because you'll find cultists like Jehovah's Witness, they'll say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, you know, you'll find even sometimes even Muslims will use that argument. And so yeah. the passion of the Christ... Uh, Jesus would not be the son of God and our redeemer without his passion, death, and resurrection. If we did not believe Jesus rose from the dead, 
the good news of the gospel would be all for nothing. But we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Christ's resurrection from the dead changes everything. It's the game changer. We believe the Son of God came down from heaven to save us. Christ became man so that we might become sons of God, according to St. Athanasius back in the 4th century. And by the way, when we make the sign of the cross, it was it was like a 10th century pope told us. The reason we go in the name of the Father and of the Son, we go from head to stomach. In other words, we're also saying is God came down to earth. That's that's the theology in the in, in the sign of the cross. It's God and 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 the way you know it, traditionally the uh, oftentimes you'll do it three fingers indicate the trinity two fingers like this you're making a cross or and it also indicates a hypostatic union the two fingers the yeah hypostatic union uh, or the cross and the three fingers of trinity so you're going in the name of the father the son so god came down to earth then we cross ourselves from left to right left remember left means damnation it means the goats the right means the sheep, salvation. So we go, God came from heaven to earth to save us, left, damnation, to save us from damnation, right, salvation. Yeah. So there's a whole yeah, theology and, just and, to make it the sign of the cross. Oh, yeah. And just think about it. You go in the name of the Father. And the minute you, like you said, you touch down at your stomach, what's down there? Oh, that's your, that's your, uh, your belly button, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in other words, the son, you know, you know, became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. it, it even speaks, speaks to that truth in the name of the father and of the son and then of the Holy Ghost. How are we brought, you know, from, you know, over to salvation? By the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole theology behind that. And it's it's good. Yeah. Rich. Yeah, rich stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's a couple of verses here. The Son of God on trial during his passion. Uh, it says in Matthew 26, 63, But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I order you to tell us under oath before the living God whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, uh, uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of verses here. I like the one about the centurion. He believed Jesus was the son of God. The centurion was, uh, he was like a captain in the military. He, uh, he had a hundred soldiers under his command. And it says, here's, I think where the first Latin mass came from. Here's, here's my, here's my, my reflection. Okay. Matthew 27, 54, the centurion and the men with him who were keeping watch over Jesus feared greatly when they saw the earthquake and all that was happening and they said, truly, this was the son of God, close quote. Now, the centurion <laughs> said that he spoke Latin. That was a prayer. That was the first Latin prayer at the foot of the cross. It was done by Roman soldiers because this centurion and a few other Roman soldiers came to faith in Christ. And as they came to faith in Christ, they proclaimed their faith in Latin. And so... When somebody says, oh, you know, Latin, that's not that old of a language. I would argue that Latin was being prayed at the foot of the cross when Our Lady was probably speaking in Hebrew and other people there, because that was already a, uh, that that area was already Hellenized by the Greeks. Other people were probably Mm -hmm. speaking, praising Jesus or cursing him in Greek. Some people were praising Jesus or cursing him in Hebrew. 
and some people were praising him and cursing him in Latin. But you find the three biblical languages right there at the foot of the cross because that was already a Hellenized world. The Old Testament was already in, translated into, into Greek in the Greek Septuagint because most of the Jews had lost their ability to speak Hebrew, just like most Mexicans after one generation yeah. don't so speak Aramaic. Spanish. Yeah. yeah. And so at the foot of the cross, Our Lady, John, and the Blessed Mother were praising God in Hebrew, praying to their son in Hebrew. There was also, without a doubt, people that uh, the, 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 the sophisticated class were praising Jesus in Greek. And also many Roman soldiers who came to faith in Christ at that moment were praising and praying to Jesus in Latin. The three biblical languages that we find in John chapter 19. And that's why the Catholic Mass incorporates all three. When it's done properly, it incorporates all three. For example, people don't realize in the Latin Mass or in the, or in, in the New Mass, the word Hosanna... Hosanna in the highest. That's not Latin. That's not Greek. Uh, that's, that's Hebrew. Hosanna is a Hebrew word which means save us. That's what Hosanna means, save us. Uh, also the Alleluias, the way we, Alleluia, that's Greek. The Jews say ha with an H. The Hebrews say, the, 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 yeah, the Jews say ha We as Catholics, we say, we, we say that in the Greek manner, Alleluia. That's Greek, and that's also the way the Latin, uh, it says it in Latin. It's, you, don't, you don't use the H. Uh, the word yeah, amen, the word amen, that's Hebrew. That's not English. That's not Spanish. That's not Latin, and that's not Greek. That's straight Hebrew. Every time you say amen during Holy Mass in, in, the, in the Novus Ordo or in the Latin Mass, that's he, you're speaking Hebrew. It's, 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 uh, it's written A-H-M-E-H-N, amen. And so uh, there's all these prayers in the Mass that maintain the biblical languages. Why? Because those are the biblical languages being proclaimed at the foot of the cross. Paul, I think that's a wrap, brother. We're done. Yeah, brother. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, uh, Thanks for uh, giving us all that good exposition, Jess, and and teaching. Uh, I learned a lot today. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm off to Israel tomorrow. I'm going to pray for every, everybody, all the VMPR family. I'm going to take all your intentions over uh, every single day to the different churches in the Holy Land and pray for all your intentions. Up next, Jerry Machuda, hands-on apologetics, coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. As for me and Paul, EOW, we are out. <coughs> See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>